When people say they don't believe in ghosts, I tell them, neither do I. Same goes for vampires, werewolves, demons, and all those other things people claim to have seen and which supposedly go bump in the night. But when they say they don't believe in witches, then I disagree. Whilst it's fine to say that you don't believe the things that some witches believe, that they commune with supernatural forces and dark entities, that they can manipulate matter and fate through magical means, then I'm with you. All of that you can dismiss, but to say you don't believe in witches and witchcraft at all makes no sense. It's like saying you don't believe in cars or buildings. These are things that are clearly and evidently there, clearly and inarguably real. There are, without a shadow of a doubt, people who consider themselves to be witches even today. They do not require your belief to exist, and whilst paganism, Wicca, and other such practices are entirely peaceful and benign, there are some who would claim the name witch for themselves who do far worse things than simply go bump in the night. In 2020, I decided to investigate a group of these witches and find out exactly what these things were, though of course now, I wish I hadn't. It took me three hours lugging my tent, camping gear, and video equipment across hills, moorland, and forest to find the spot where the coven known as the Molten Group was rumored to meet. The strange stories and sinister reputation that had attached themselves to this group made them instantly distinguishable from modern practitioners of religions such as Wicca. For one thing, their beliefs were much older. For another, they were much darker. According to the documents I had examined in the British Library, records and reports of this group extended back well before the witch craze that left hundreds of women across Europe dead at the hands of their own government and institutions, with some suggesting that references to strange rites in the area even predated the Norman Conquest, pushing the date back well into the 9th century AD. Some academics I consulted even argued that to call the group a coven was inaccurate, because the word coven was not associated with groups of witches until Margaret Murray decided to use it in reference to them. They also refused to fit with the characteristics that people, and especially Hollywood, tend to associate with witch covens. For example, some people claimed that the coven should comprise of 13 people, or 12 in the devil, in a mockery of Christ's Last Supper. For the Molten Group, no such rules applied, and there were reports of gatherings that numbered more than 13 members. Some believe that witches are all women, and so covens are made up of women. The Molten Group again was different, composed as it was of both women and men, and so on. Additionally, it is usually the case that a coven's black mass is some kind of inversion of the Christian doctrine. The Molten Group, however, from what little was known about them, seemed to shun Christian beliefs altogether practicing rituals that were instead older and entirely distinct from Christian practices. Stories about exactly these practices differ wildly. Some, for example, claim that to be initiated into the left-hand path, people wishing to join the meetings would have their fingernail from their pinky finger on their left hand pulled off with pliers and a small image of a watching eye tattooed directly on the raw, exposed flesh of the nail bed. The process is extremely painful but the scarring allows members to identify each other in daily life. Other reports claim that rituals involved kissing the hindquarters of an immense he-goat, making offerings of rotten meat and even committing acts of infocide in the name of human sacrifice. How much of this was sensationalism, demonizing, or simply lies, nobody seemed to be able to tell me. So, in my second year of my postgrad in film and media communications, I decided that I would explore the possibility of making a documentary about this group, interviewing respected academics, modern representatives of other neo-pagan faith, and, as a main event, 
heading into the woods around Moulton on Sabbath in an attempt to secretly film what went on at these meetings. For years, local newspapers in and around the town of Moulton had contained reports of naked gatherings, of people dancing around campfires on midsummer evenings and making strange prayers to unfamiliar gods. There were reports of arrests, of people's pets going missing in the run-up to significant dates on the astrological calendar, and of people within the town holding esoteric underground meetings where they would exchange books and handwritten prayers or charms. There were eyewitness reports from people who claimed to have seen strange horned things lurking in the groves and hollows of the woods. Others claimed to have been walking their dog when they encountered a huge black goat that not only reared up to lean against a nearby tree, but spoke to them in English. Other outlandish claims talked of strange markings found carved in trees or scratched in the mud in clearings, of curious howls and wails that came from the forest on certain nights, and of groups of outsiders who would turn up in the local restaurants and pubs dressed in black, drink only water, and leave as a group. Much of what was said was hearsay and rumor, difficult to prove or even more difficult to film. However, the one consistent element in all of the reports and interviews with experts was the idea that the Moulton Group met every year on the night of the summer solstice at a point deep within the woods around Moulton for the purposes of performing some form of ritual. So well known and believed was the curious bit of local folklore that every year the main entrances to the woods via the public footpaths were closed and even on occasion guarded by police cordon to stop the curious residents, tourists, and presumably the group themselves from heading up there. Though of course this didn't stop them, nor was it going to stop me. In 2020, as I'm sure you know, most large gatherings were canceled because of the COVID-19 restrictions. Lockdowns meant that people could not legally leave their homes except to exercise. They were not allowed to mix with people from other households or socialize with more than one person. And even then, only when socially distanced. Whilst you might think that would mean that my plan to film the event would be scruppered, I in fact thought the opposite for a number of reasons. Firstly, if you're going to do some kind of barbaric human sacrifice, satanic ritual, or black magic orgy, are you really going to worry about coronavirus rules? I was betting not. Secondly, if the police did decide to worry about enforcing these rules, going up there with the idea that they could make many arrests on the grounds of breaking COVID guidelines, then great! Police breaking up a witchcraft ritual would make fantastic footage. Thirdly, if people did stick to the rules, it would mean that nobody else would be going up to spy on proceedings so I wouldn't have to worry about idiot tourists or curious locals getting in the way. And finally, the police would not expect anyone to be out, and so getting to the point would be far easier than any year before. Needless to say, a week before the event, I had already packed my bag. To avoid even the possibility of being approached by the police, I decided to go up to Martin's Point, the elevation in the woods where that ritual was said to take place, a day early. I set up camp around a half a mile away, in an area well off from the path and ensured that my tent and equipment was not only well camouflaged, but not in any way visible from the path. Then I checked my equipment, scouted a few good vantage points from which to film the following evening and returned to camp. Despite knowing that the group was not set to arrive until the following day and not believing in any of the hocus-pocus nonsense they believed, I can honestly say that even the first night was unnerving. To avoid being detected by passerbys or police, I decided to do without a fire or lamps. Therefore, when the sun went down, 
my camp was in almost total darkness. I don't mind admitting that then, alone in the quiet, with only my thoughts in the darkness for company, strange ideas began to seep into my mind. I found myself listening out for footsteps, for the snap of a twig, or the whispered rush of brushes rattling. With each small sound that disturbed the calm, I would freeze, feeling myself go rigid and listening closely for any further movement. I did not sleep well that night. The following day, I again checked perspective angles and lines of sight, ensuring that I could film the goings-on without being detected. It was only when I returned to my camp in the afternoon that I noticed the tracks. Hoof prints larger than a sheep or the average goat, cloven feet that had circled time and time again around my tent and left deep impressions in the mud, so deep as to suggest that the animal that created them must have been of some considerable weight. More worrying, however, were the human footprints, and when I say footprints, I don't mean shoe prints or boot marks. I mean bare, naked footprints made by someone padding silently and barefoot around my tent. I wondered for a moment whether they might have been made whilst I was away checking sites. Had they been there that morning? I could not be sure. I weighed up the idea of moving my tent to another location, even, if I'm honest, for a second considered scrapping the whole project. I'm not too proud to admit that the footprints did creep me out. Unfortunately, I realized that with the sunset fast approaching, I would not have time to move and that if I was going to go through with this, then now was the time. So, picking up my equipment, I made my way to the spot upon which I decided, settled myself down with camouflage I'd borrowed from a birdwatcher friend of mine, and waited. For an hour or so after dark, nothing happened. The clearing at Martin's Peak remained entirely empty of everything but darkness for a while, and I thought the entire project would be a bust. But then, I heard a scream, a high keening wail that sent the roosting birds fluttering in black clouds of feathers and fright like plumes of smoke in the sky. All at once, it occurred to me that perhaps the group had decided to change locations this year, that perhaps they had bargained on police trying to break up the meeting and had shifted to another location. Dragging and tugging myself as quietly but swiftly as I could through the tangles of weeds, ferns, and grasping brambles, I fumbled through the pitch black toward the direction from which I thought the sound had come. I wondered for a moment how people could have come into the woods, even close by, without me hearing them and for a moment thought again of the barefooted prints outside my tent. A thought that now, in the silence and dark, sent a crackle of electric fear up my spine. As I moved even closer to where I thought I heard the sound, I realized that for the first time that I was not simply nervous or apprehensive, I was scared. My mouth, clogged with cotton woolness dryness, my pulse racing ever more quickly, I fought my way through the tangled undergrowth and all at once, I saw them. At first, it was just the glow of the fire, then people, dozens of them, walking around and around in close barefoot circles without a sound. Where I had expected chanting, had read and heard of screams and songs, instead what greeted me was a wall of awful, pregnant silence as the group, naked and each wearing some form of strange animal mask, paced in a deliberate hush like death, slowly and deliberately around the center, hiding silently like predators in the night but all sharing a common purpose. It was at that point that my eyes caught sight of exactly what they were circling, the central focus of the strange dance. When I tell people it was a goat, they think it sounds mundane, like nothing particular out of the ordinary. But believe me when I tell you, this was like no goat I had ever seen before or since. 
Not only was it immense, almost monstrous size, but it stood, not rested, not balanced, but stood on its hind legs, perched there, as if it had always walked upright and as if in some strange way it was always meant to. At that point, I was already considering running, simply forgetting the project and bolting in the opposite direction. I had half made up my mind to do so when I saw the child, an infant of no more than two months old. The child wailed and screeched in the silence as one of the group, a young woman, stepped forward, presented the child before the animal, and then gave it to the others. I will not explain here what I saw the woman do next. It will serve nobody to go into details, though I think I can give enough of a picture by saying that what she did, she did with her teeth. I ran, sprinted and crashed through the bracken without a care for how much noise I made or in which direction I was headed. I did not collect my camera, my tent or any equipment, some of which belonged to the university and which I am still making repayments on now. It took me hours to hike to that point the previous day. It took me less half the time, running in utter terror to make it back to the road. I am making this statement here in the hope that someone who sees this video will believe me, and that someone somewhere will take the time to investigate and arrest the people doing these awful things in Moulton. Some have asked why I didn't report what I saw straight away, why they didn't see it all over the news the following day, and whether it was because I was embarrassed or scared. The simple answer is, I did report it. As soon as I hit the road, I ran at full pelt toward the town center and straight to the police station where I gave a full and detailed account of what I had seen, begging the officer taking my statement to go up to the woods and arrest the people committing these acts, banging the table, screaming at him and insisting that he check, just please take a car and check. It was only when I saw the missing nail on his little finger and the tiny tattoo printed below that I realized he never would.